Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy, focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense investigations and compliance. This is a part of a series of web chats recording during this period of self-isolation with prominent folks in the anti-corruption world to help keep everyone informed. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Nicola Bonucci. Nicola recently joined Paul Hastings and for years was the Director of Legal Affairs at the OECD, where he played a key role on the working group on bribery. Welcome, Nicola. Welcome. Good morning to you, or good afternoon for me, Billy. Yeah, it's great to have you here. How are you holding up uh, during this uh, period of self-isolation, and where? Where in the world are you? So I'm based in a Paul Hastings office in Paris, um, so in France, but I'm not currently in, in France uh, because just uh, before... Uh, confinement lockdown was announced, I decided to move the family out of Paris. Um, the family uh, is with me, the family being my mother, my mother-in-law, my wife, and my daughter. Uh, my uh, son is in, in Italy, in our family house in Italy, um, and is doing fine. So uh, we are now uh, week uh, six here in France in terms of confinement, and I think Compared to a number of other people, we, we are in very privileged because we are in a country house uh, with a big garden. We can go outside, we can walk in the garden, uh, we can have even meals in the garden when the weather allows. Uh, so this is very, very nice. So all things being considered, I, I'm holding up okay, but uh, I think I can start to find time a bit long, to be honest with you. So, Nicola, you played a key role at the OECD Working Group on Bribery for many, many years. It's where you and I first met. Can you give, for those of uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with the Working Group, can you give us a brief overview of what the Working Group does? Sure. So, basically, the Working Group uh, was uh, established uh, in the beginning uh, of the OECD anti-bribery convention and in the aftermath of the convention was basically given the role of monitor the implementation of the convention. It is a group which is rather unique in, in the OECD uh, framework, but I would say it is probably rather unique in, in international institutions and international organizations because it is basically the collective body monitoring the implementation of a legally binding treaty. And it does that through uh, two means and tools, uh, uh, what we call a peer review, i.e. each country is evaluated one after the other. Uh, and this is done through different cycles. So the group is now in the cycle four of evaluation. And as I said, all the parties to the convention there are two days 44 countries, which are parties of the convention, are evaluated. And they're evaluated by a team composed of the secretariat, uh, which are part of until recently, and two what we call lead examiners, i.e. two other countries, parties to the convention. And this team uh, evaluates the implementation, not only on paper, but the effective implementation of the convention. And for doing that, goes also on site. So in fact, for the US, the onsite visit for the uh, phase four of the US took place in January of, of this year, of 2020. 
Based on this on-site visit and based on all the documents that the Secretariat has collected for the lead examiner, there is a report which is then produced to the, to the group, uh, which is reviewed by the group. That's where the term peer review uh, takes really full uh, steam and is adopted by the group uh, on the basis of an important rule, which is consensus minus one, i.e. the evaluated country cannot block the adoption of the report. And the other important rule also, which uh, plays an important role, is that all the reports are made public. There is no discussion about, you know, keeping it, uh, not uh, keeping it secret or confidential. All the reports are made public. So all the OECD reports, concerning all the parties to the convention are all available on the OECD website. Once the report is issued, the report will contain a number of recommendations and will also contain a general evaluation of the implementation by the country. And this is where the second part of the OECD working group methods triggers is what we call the peer pressure. By the simple fact that the report is released, and made public, if it is critical uh, of some of the features or if it is critical for lack of enforcement or lack of implementation, clearly this will attract a lot of pre um, you know, press attention, media attention, and will put pressure on the public authorities so that the public authorities will feel compelled to move and take action following the um, release of the report. If this doesn't happen, there are other ways in which the group can put pressure on the countries, including by issuing a special statement or writing letters to ministers. And all those tools are what we call the peer pressure. So by the combination of peer review and peer pressure, the working group has really done an incredible work in terms of uh, implementation of the convention in the last 20 years. I agree. And, and let's, let's focus on the peer pressure just for a moment, because it's fair to say, isn't it, that neither the OECD itself nor the working group has, of course, the force of law. Um, every country has to take on its own initiative to change its laws or enforce its laws in a more assiduous fashion. But what the OECD working group is able to do is publicize their view of how a country is doing. And because of the credibility that the working group has built up over the last 20 years, those criticisms, those comments, um, those peer monitoring reports are taken very, very seriously, both by the media, by civil society, um, and by governments. Is that fair? That's absolutely correct. And I would say more and more, those reports uh, are given a high level of publicity because the issue has become more and more prominent on the international agenda. So it becomes more and more difficult for a country uh, being seen as lagging uh, in, in, in what is now an international consensus, which is fight against transnational bribery is a top priority. Uh, let's not forget that while the convention was established 20 years ago, uh, the G20 established an anti-corruption working group um, in the early 2010, and there are a number of other conventions which exist. So there is an international agenda and international pressure in a sense. And the working group from bribery publicity, the one that you indicated, is indeed uh, has indeed proven to be very effective. 
uh, and enforcing even major legislative changes in a number of countries. And the last point that I would like to make, which I think is very important also, is that the working group has really been very, um, very scrupulous, if I may say, in treating all countries equally. There are no big players or, or small players, and the group did not hesitate in, in criticizing important countries, including G7 countries in the past. Yeah, and, and we'll get to one of those uh, big points of criticism of a big, important economic player uh, in, in a moment. We'll, we'll focus on the working group's criticism of the UK several years ago. Uh, but before we do that, um, the, the working group recently issued a press release announcing a study on the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on foreign bribery. Can you shed any light on, on what this might mean? First, let me say that this is, as far as I remember, unprecedented. Uh, so I don't recall any circumstance in which the working group on bribery or the ACE issued a public statement not vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular country or vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular case or a particular situation, but vis-a-vis uh, -a, -vis a general situation like the one that we are confronted today. And I think this by itself is, is an interesting uh, uh, symbol of the importance that the working group attaches to the issue. And I would say rightly so. Uh, I think it's a paradox at time that we're living in terms of uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement, because on the one hand, clearly, for a number of reasons, uh, law enforcement, investigation, and prosecutions are not uh, easy to carry on uh, for obvious reasons. And at the same time, a number of companies and governments are struggling with basically very urgent needs. But it is really in this particular period that you know, new risk uh, or new loopholes can be used by those who are not so scrupulous. And I think the working group on bribery it, it was really uh, right on spot uh, for issuing uh, a public statement. Let, let me remind that in order to issue this public statement, you need to have the consensus for the 44 parties to the convention. And what is interesting in the statement is that it says two things. It says first that indeed they will monitor the situation. And um, in fact, what I know is that they are sending a survey to all the parties to the convention, uh, asking them how they are dealing with this particular situation vis-a-vis -vis, uh, anti-corruption and anti-compliance efforts. And in particular, and I think this is an interesting question, what strategy they have put in place? And we can say a word about that. But the second point, which is very interesting in the OSIN statement, is it says, and we will look at solutions that can be provided to countries. So it, the, the group this time goes a bit beyond the mere monitoring, but also, in a sense, drives a sort of capacity building uh, expertise that they collectively decide to provide to, to the parties of the convention. So I think it's a very important statement that it will be very interesting to see how this will be followed up by the group in the next few months. Yeah, it sort of an anticipates that um, the working group will actually be issuing some guidance in real time as we as we march through this crisis. Is that that's how you take it? I think so. Uh, again, you know, I'm not anymore in the secular, but uh, I, I certainly uh, uh, read it as you do. What is interesting is that one aspect which maybe uh, has not been really focused is that uh, the 
our evaluation of the countries is also naturally flawed by the situation because, for example, the on-site visit I was mentioning before cannot be carried out for the moment. So there, there is more space for the working group on bribery to uh, do this kind of horizontal analysis. And this is an analysis which also can be more easily done through remote than a country-by-country -country evaluation. So I think it was a very smart and concrete move that, that the working group uh, has put forward. And as I said, I think in terms of strategy, it would be very, very interesting to see the results of the survey and the answer given by the countries, because my own perception is that I don't think there are many countries, if any, who has really developed a strategy on how to deal with COVID-19 and the urgent needs in equipment and tools and, and goods and services and, let's say, necessary relaxation maybe of some of the rules, and at the same time preserving the integrity and the transparency of, for example, public procurement or donation policies or public and private partnership. My evaluation is that well, they are all scrambling, both companies and governments, and I don't think many have really developed a, a strategy um, which mitigates the, the, the risk or reduce the risk that some of those relaxations of the rules or, or, or speed up of those uh, could entail in terms of uh, corruption risk. I think that's right. There, we've we've been talking a lot in the in the corruption and in the white collar bar recently about how yeah. fraudsters and corrupt actors um, prey upon situations like this, crisis like this. They always seem to be able to find the seams in which to operate in either a fraudulent or a corrupt way. So it's it's great that the working group is focusing on that. Nicola, a, a key aspect of the working group's work, um, as you mentioned earlier, has to do with its its peer review reports, its monitoring reports regarding how well countries are implementing and enforcing their foreign bribery laws. In your time uh, at the working group, or rather in, in, in more recent years is probably the better question, which one or two countries um, would you say have made the greatest strides in, in either their implementation of the statute or their enforcement of their statute? Well, I, I'm glad that you, that you specified in the most recent years, because if we were to talk about the 20 years, I think we will end up with, with a long list of countries. Uh, <laughs> and, and some of them uh, we will probably discuss later, and, and, and you, were, you were there at the time. But I would say in, in the most recent uh, years, uh, very clearly the, the country which has been the subject of an intense scrutiny uh, pressure from the group and which finally has reacted and has reacted in, I would say, a fairly convincing and comprehensive way is France. France uh, traditionally had put in place a legislation in the early 2000s, which was, uh, I would say, satisfactory at the time, but always had the problem of implementation. And this problem of implementation started to be so acute that the working group on bribery uh, raised its criticism in, you know, starting in early 2010, 2012, and the last report, 2014, which was very, very critical of France and really basically naming and shaming France. And this was a shakeup. So going back to, to the point that we were discussing, 
um, at the beginning of this uh, conversation, uh, the level of attention that the reports received was very high, including at the political level. And this has translated in very concrete initiatives. Uh, first, the creation of a special law enforcement authorities dealing with financial crime, including foreign bribery, uh, which is called the Parquet National Financier. Then the adoption of the law uh, known as Sapin II, which is, Sapin is the name of the Minister of Finance, it was the promoter of the law. And the third pillar is the establishment of an anti-corruption, new anti-corruption agency called the Agence Française Anti-Corruption, which has a very interesting role of both guiding companies, but also checking and monitoring companies. So it's an interesting um, animal in terms of institutional setting. And all this was really due to the OECD pressure and to the OECD working group on bribery. So, uh, uh, no, and this led up, led up, led to, to the possible resolution of the Airbus settlement in, in January 2020, so two, two months ago. Uh, so I think this is really one of the biggest uh, success stories of the group in recent years. And switching gears a little bit, one of the most interesting and I'd say important efforts of the working group in recent years was the working group's response to the UK government's termination of the SFO's investigation into the Al Yamama arms deal between BAE and the Saudi government. Um, and while the, the the SFO's investigation and the subsequent DOJ investigation is, is pretty well known, um, I think what's less well known is the working group's role uh, at that time and the working group's role in the eventual passage of the UK Bribery Act. So I wonder if you sort of walk us through the working group's reaction and the work that the working group put in uh, starting in about 2007. So this brings back mutual memories, huh, Billy? <laughs> it does um, indeed, yeah. So I think this was, if not the most, let's say, crucial time of the working group, it was one of the crucial times of the life of the working group. So let's let's try to without being too long, but let's try to go back where we were, because we were in 2007. So it's 12 years ago, and even though the the, the fight against transnational bribery was still up, it was very up on the agenda. The the United Nations Convention Against Corruption had just been finished to be signed and ratified. You know, these were still I would say the early stages of even the working group on bribery. Let, let's not forget that the first step for the working group on bribery was to make sure that there was a legislation in place in all the parties to the convention. And for all the parties to the convention, this was a huge step, except for the United States, who had already had the FCPA. So the first years of the working group on bribery were really focused very much on, on, on the legal framework and not so much on the cases. Right. And I think this this was really the very first time in which the working group on bribery had to focus on the case. And had to focus on the case because the case was so prominent and, uh, and the attention of the media was so high that, you, I mean, if they would not have really looked at the case, uh, they would have basically collectively failed and probably uh, lose the credibility that 
that we were talking about. And I think the way in which the working group on bribery addressed the matter was absolutely smart and clever. Clearly, the working group on bribery could not uh, revisit the decision itself. The decision, by the way, was the suspension. And I don't know if, incidentally, I don't know if the case was ever formally terminated, but let's put this aside. So they couldn't really question the reasoning or the rationale of the case because they could not, for the reason that you indicated before, we are not a law enforcement, they were not a law enforcement authorities, they do not, didn't have you know, subpoena power or anything like that. So what was the smart move is to say, okay, what this suspension means in terms of systemic loopholes and inadequacies of the legal framework. And this is how the matter was start to be addressed in various meetings held in early 2008, following the decision to suspend, and which led the working group on bribery to conclude that, in fact, there were inherent loopholes in the legal framework of the UK legislation at the time. Uh, let's not forget that the UK was the only country when they ratified the convention that decided that its legislation was okay, did not need to either be adopted or amended. And in fact, uh, the case of the BIA case demonstrated that all the legislation which was dating from the early 20th century was not adequately covering uh, transnational bribery. So this led the, the working group on bribery to basically say two things. First, you're not implementing the convention because your legislation is inadequate. And secondly, and in a sense, going back to the statement uh, that we were talking about, about COVID, to also offer uh, at the same time the UK to basically set up a new legal framework, much more adequate and robust. And this led to the UK Bribery Act. And in fact, there was even a mission uh, of some countries and the chair and myself to work with the UK authorities uh, to discuss with the UK authorities about the scope and purpose of the UK, the possible new UK Bribery Act. Um, there were uh, points which uh, on which we interacted with, with the UK authorities very, very open, very frankly. And, you know, I was even called as a witness in front of the House of Commons to, to present the view of the ECD. So I think this was an, a very powerful way to interact with the country, saying, you know, what you're doing is not up to the standards, but instead of only stopping there, saying, okay, if you want in good faith to improve the situation, Let's work together and let's do it together. And, you know, it's true that everybody has focused on the UK Bribery Act, but not many have realized how important was the working group on bribery pressure first, but also the role that the working group on bribery held even in the drawing up or the setting up of what is now known the UK Bribery Act. And I think this was really one of the highlights of the working group on bribery and one of the moments, as I said, one of these threshold uh, moments in which you have really to basically go above yourself and, and, and be, be, be bold. And the working group on bribery was bold. There were other moments uh, in, in the history of the, book, uh, of the group, but this was one, one really which is a uh, landmark.
I totally agree. And it's one for which you should feel very proud, if, if I may say. I have the privilege to be mentioned in WikiLeaks because of that. <laughs> You're famous. <laughs> exactly. And thanks to the U.S. mission, by the way, because there were a couple of cables from the U.S. mission to Paris to Washington, which were leaked in WikiLeaks, and, uh, and they were discussing uh, the working group on by discussions, and I was mentioning a couple of those. So the suspension of the uh, investigation, the suspension of the SFO's investigation, as unfortunate as that was, thanks to the working group in large part, really led to what we may say was a greater good uh, with the passage of the UK Bribery Act, where one of the world's biggest economies now has what appears to be effective legislation in this regard, um, as opposed to the hodgepodge of statutes that they were trying to piece together before that statute was passed. That's absolutely true. I said, the same, in a sense, can be can be said to what has happened in, with, with respect to France more recently, or you may remember, I don't know if you were there at the time, in the early years, we had a lot of issues with Italy and, you know, uh, because Italy was governed by President Berlusconi, who had a very close interest in the legislation against corruption not being effective. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, the pressure of the OECD at the end of the day uh, helped always to move forward, even though those are critical and very tense moments. It's wonderful, wonderful work that they're that they have done and and continue to do. Very important. Um, one last point about the UK. Despite all of the good that's come out um, and all of the positive developments, um, I think it's fair to say that the working group still has a concern about the UK's implementation of Article Five of the Convention and more specifically with regard to the independence of prosecutions. Can you say a few things about the working group's view on that? I think this question of Article 5, maybe I should, I should uh, explain uh, what Article 5 is about, because this is a very specific article, which, by the way, exists only in the OECD anti-bribery convention and in none of the other anti-corruption anti-bribery convention. It basically says, that investigation and prosecution should, in, in a foreign bribery case, should always be carried out based on merits and merits only. And that consideration of national economic interest, you know, diplomatic relations or the identity of the natural person, the legal person should not play any role. It is a key article, Billy. I cannot stress the importance of Article 5 in the context of this very difficult area of transnational bribery. And indeed, there were concerns at the time that, in particular with the role of the Attorney General, the fact that for some cases, it was required to have the Attorney General consent in order for, for investigate and prosecute, that these considerations not allowed under Article 5 could play a role. This concern existed at the time. My understanding is that the concern is still there. And in fact, there is a case pending still for which the SFO has requested authorization to basically proceed with the investigation and prosecution, which is still waiting for the Attorney General consent. And this has been dragging on for almost two years. So those are indeed concerns which, which are still there. And I would say that those concerns are not limited to the UK. Article 5, I, I suspect, will become more and more important in the future. We had some discussions around this in the context of the case in Canada around SNC-Lavalin and the Attorney General and the Attorney General 
um, you know, resignation. There were also discussion about Article 5 and independence of prosecution with respect to France. I think the balance uh, here is to respect the principle of the prosecution of discretion, which exists in a number of countries, but being sure that this discretion uh, is used when the public interest deserve uh, to be used, i.e. that no investigation or, or prosecution is carried out only because the public interest does not require such investigation and prosecution, and not for reasons, as I said, which should not play a role in, in this matter. In the post-COVID area, in which we may face difficult economic times and a lot of competition by countries and possibly a bit of economic nationalism in in a number of uh, parties of the convention, my suspicion is that Article 5 consideration may become even more relevant across the board. So I think this is one of the challenges that the working group on bribery will have to face in the future. Interesting. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Um, and of course, we've we've already seen signs of that sort of nationalistic fervor um, in, among other countries, the United States. And so uh, I, I think it's fair to say we haven't seen political interference with foreign bribery cases in the United States, but we have at least arguably seen political interference with regard to other sorts of corruption uh, cases in the United States. So it wouldn't implicate Article 5, which is focused on foreign bribery, but who knows what the future may unfortunately hold. So to end things on a slightly more uplifting note than that, uh, Nicola, we like to end these by asking folks uh, about something positive that has come out of this period of isolation for all of us. Is, is there something for you that has been a positive development? Well, clearly the positive development, I, I will not be very original here, it, it is to have more time with your family. As I said in the beginning of this conversation, uh, we have regrouped uh, both my mother, my mother-in-law, my wife, my daughter. And it's nice you now to, to, to spend even half an hour together around a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and discuss about things on a long period, on a longer period than the usual one week or two weeks of holidays that we could spend together. So I think this is really an added value of this particular period. It, 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 the relation with, with the notion of time is slightly different because you know, working mostly and working in the office, it's not that you work more or less, but it's a different kind of work. So it's easier to, to, to extract yourself for 15, 20 minutes and then go back to your, to your laptop or, or, or to your phone. Uh, but those moments with the family, I think, are, are really important moments. And it would be interesting to see you know, what will happen after COVID in terms of that. Yeah, if we can if we can retain some of this appreciation we exactly. have for, exactly. for these, this quiet time, these re reflective times, the times with exactly. family. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for taking some time with us. This was a really interesting discussion, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Billy, and uh, good luck to you and your family, and uh, stay in touch. <laughs> thank you. Same to you. Bye bye. Bye bye.